Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. The crowd here is amazing. It is the largest crowd I've ever seen at Skyline. It's, it's huge. And if you're listening on the podcast, you can't actually verify that. I'm going to be reading from Safe, which is my new novel. Uh, it's out on MCD, which is an amazing imprint of, uh, of FSG. And they're really kind of pushing boundaries and, and, and doing fantastic, interesting stuff. And I'm just honored to be part of it. I was actually researching a completely different book when I got a phone call from a gentleman that I had actually spent quite a bit of time with for, for all involved, a former gang member. And <laughs> he asked me if I wanted to see a safe get cracked. And my answer to that was obviously yes. So I went and I was basically told I had a few hours in the room with these two safe crackers as they went to work on an old safe. And <laughs> I was basically told, look, you know, you're probably not going to see these guys again when they're done doing what they need to do. So soak it in. Ask them anything you want. And, and the first thing I asked them was, are you ever left alone when you're, when you're safe crack? And they said, yes, absolutely. You know, we work for the DEA, the FBI, sheriffs. We're officers of the court. So anything we touch after we open a safe is, you know, it goes, goes straight into evidence, chain of evidence. I said, okay. Um, so you're, if you're left alone, well, uh, does anybody ever come back? If you're doing a gang house, you know, maybe, maybe somebody comes back. I said, oh yeah, all the time. Yeah, I had a, I had a gun pulled on me last week. Okay. Um, can, you, can you explain to me uh, why you didn't get shot? <laughs> and, and, the, and these gentlemen kind of looked at each other and, and almost made a decision to, to basically explain their psychology of survival. And, and I think uh, just the, the kernel of that was so strong and inspiring that I actually ended up stepping away from the other research I was doing and started working on SAFE immediately. Uh, there are two narrators. Uh, one is named Ghost, and he does exactly the job I've just described. Uh, he's a safe cracker, DEA, FBI, etc. And the book opens with him deciding that this particular shape safe on this particular job that he has to open, if he gets left alone, he's taking the money. And what I'm about to read to you is chapter five. And it's what happens the moment he opens the safe. With the safe's mouth busted and just hanging open in the middle of the carpet, I reach in hit paper, and pull my hand right out like it's hot. That's when I look in and see every shelf full. Six of them, 
deep like a library bookcase. I even pull both little drawers at the bottom up and out. One is empty, the other has coins in it. Coins I can do nothing with, so I drop that back down into its slot, but then I stand up because I gotta stand up or I'm gonna go lightheaded. And I walk over to the front door and I look out the peephole outside. Neighbor voices are going, but nobody's standing in front of the part in the apartment or near my Jeep. The coast is clear enough. I'm feeling it. Adrenaline burning in me like getting tattooed on the inside. That's how I know I'm still taking the money as much as I can get away with. I kneel back down at the safe and pull cash out by the fistful. There's a problem though. As I'm laying it out, and I feel a knot getting tight inside me. This isn't small bills from street slinging. It's not a mess of tens and twenties or wadded up fives pressed flat from junkies. It's all fucking hundreds. Too neat. Safe guts never look like this all. Clean. This is good news, I guess, but it's also very bad news. All this cash might mean a delivery was coming. Cash on hand to get sent back to Mexico. That's the likeliest. I'm still wondering why the runners didn't take what was in here when they bounced. But then I get to thinking that maybe they didn't have the key. Maybe only their boss had the key and he wasn't here or couldn't get here quick enough before La Dea came knocking or... I tell my brain to shut up. I even say it out loud to calm me down. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. That tattoo machine still going inside me, ripping my lungs up, making it hard to breathe. Thinking won't do anybody good now. Only taking will. I check my watch, I'm at 20 minutes. Shit. Fast and messy, I unload my drills and pull their foam linings. Last week I cut some deeper compartments into the plastic underneath, enough to stick about eight stacks in each, so I do. Thick as eight books. I overfill it though because when I put the foam and the drill back in it won't close so I have to take some out. Half a stack comes back on the floor and then I fill the other drill case and get both closed up. The loose stuff goes into my toolbox in its false bottom that I added. My brain's back on again. All this cash it's trying to tell me. There's no way I'm getting away with it. There's too much here. The owners of this cash will come looking. They'll come looking hard. Shut up. I say to my brain, I don't need to get far with it, I just need to drive. Getting caught? That's happening. As sure as breathing, that's happening. You can't take from these people without consequences. They'll catch me. The only problem is, I definitely have less time now. If it was just a little money here or there, I might be able to go on for a while. That was always the plan, like that Johnny Cash song, Frank is always humming, one piece at a time, but not this. This is the kind of thing that makes me glad I took some precautions so I can stay moving. When I take this money, there's no going back. I know that as I wrap my ankles with rolls and then I pull my socks way up like I used to back in the day. Me, I'm not worried about. I know I'm going out the bad way, but there's power in that guarantee. I've been doing bad almost my whole life. Hurting people, innocent people, people that never did deserve it, like how I said at group once when I was on drugs, I was a Tasmanian devil of pain and bullshit. All through my growing up, a whole mess of people got caught in my tornado. So now, knowing this is it for me, it's a gift. A chance to go out clean, and, and that's all I need, a chance, because 
I lived messy too long and I done so much shit I should have been dead for. 20 times over. How I even made it to wearing this laminate on my chest without a criminal record is a goddamn miracle because I've been up in some shit and I got so dirty living stories where I'm the villain that they're all sunk into my bones now and they're never letting me go. So fuck it, I say. If this is the end, it might as well be a good one. I get up, I go to the sink and I'm surprised to find there's more than decent sized plastic shopping bags in there. I take the biggest one from a cowboy boot store and I stack almost three whole shelves inside. I eyeball it, smush it flat, tie the top and test it to see if it'll fit under my passenger seat. And then I walk outside. I carry it to my Jeep and get it situated before locking up and taking my phone out as I walk back in. I call Collins at 32 minutes. It's open, I say. Sending someone now, he says, before hanging up, I mess up the rest of the safe. I make it look like any other bust. Not neat, not stacked, crumpled up, thrown in. I even pull the coins from the drawer and toss a few around inside the hear pain. I pull my gloves and stuff them in my back pocket and then I wait. Sure. There were eyes on me when I walked that bag to the car. Doesn't matter if the block was looking. The people that put that money in the safe in the first place will know I took it. Sooner or late, they'll find out. They got people to hand over police or fed reports. That's a given. They'll know I walked the bag out. And then they'll read those reports and know the numbers that when confiscated by the government don't match up to the numbers they know for sure were in the safe. They'll check to see if somebody on DEA is dirty and they'll run, it with that. they'll run with that till they're sure. Maybe they even got somebody dirty on the inside already. Somebody that can help them get to the bottom of it even quicker. They'll check with the house runners too, just to make sure nobody's taking off the top from inside the house. When they're done with their inventory, after all that, they'll know for sure there's only me. They'll know I'm the only one that makes sense. And then, They'll figure out what to do about me, a problem like ghosts. Maybe they'll wrap me out to DEA or sheriffs or anyone else I work for so they can get me thrown into prison so I can get dealt with while I'm in there. But most likely, they'll just find me, scoop me up, walk me somewhere quiet. And after I tell them where the money is hid, they'll shoot me low caliber under the chin so it doesn't make a mess. It's not rocket sciences. There's too many of them and there's only one of me. That's just how it'll go down. And I'm good with that. Fast is how this needs to go so they don't focus on someone else. Not Frank, not Laura, definitely not Mira. Just me. They gotta catch my ass first though. And I intend to jab and move. Jab and move and do a whole lot of damage before they corner me more damage than they ever thought one dude could. Thank you. Uh, I already gave you a little bit of background with the research. Uh, I'm happy to answer any questions you might have or if you even need to know more about the book. Talk more about the research. Talk more about the research. You know, I, I, 
in many ways, uh, the research for safe maps to all the work I did with All Involved, which was my previous book, set in 92 during the riots. Uh, I basically spent years with a number of former gang members, nurses, firefighters, you know, people who had just been through it and had a completely different perspective to anything I'd ever seen uh, in on TV or read in books. I read every nonfiction book I could find on the riots, but you know, being able to talk to people who, who actually knew what it was like was a revelation. Um, and one of the things I heard that I think really set the tone for that book was that uh, those six days were, were the Wild West in certain parts of LA, especially South Central. Um, a lot of the folks that I speak to and continue to speak to are from Linwood uh, in South Central, which is right next to Compton. Everybody on earth knows Compton. Just about nobody knows Linwood, but they share Long Beach Boulevard and all the same problems. Uh, so it's, it's really built on that. Um, the thing that was interesting, my very one of my very first meetings uh, with a gentleman who, who kind of ran things uh, in the 90s, uh, he told me that I could not write about the present day. That was just one of the restrictions he put on me. So SAFE is set in 2008 during the financial crisis. It basically opens the day before uh, Bear Stearns goes under and, and just starts the market slide and an awful lot of uh, folks losing their houses, unfortunately. So at least for me, that really fit with the idea of something that I'd love to call Robin Hood Noir, where you've got a character like Ghost, whose entire reason for being is to try to make up for all the bad things he did in the past. And the way that he does that is steal money and try to give it to people who need it or will benefit from it. Um, one of the things I love to do with my books is, you know, uh, go to every single setting. So 99% of the settings in All Involved and Safe, I've been there. So all the streets are real. Like when characters talk about driving somewhere, it's a real route. It's how you would get there. Uh, when they get there, uh, they talk about what they see or what they feel, and uh, that's kind of how I process it, but of course I always run it by, by people who know, you know, people who are from there, who, who... Have the police ever tried to talk to you? No, they have not. Uh, and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that uh, my wife used to work at the DA's office and is incredibly intelligent about informing me how to take some of these sit-downs with people and be really straightforward. Like, look, you know, I'm not here to tell anybody's story. I write fiction. This is a novel. All Involved is a novel. Um, and, and I think everybody understood that from the jump, that it wasn't about telling anybody's story. It definitely wasn't about writing something true that may or may not have been an unsolved crime. Uh, and I'm, I don't need that. They don't need that. You know, a, a big part of, of All Involved and even Safe to some extent is, is just making sure that, that everyone stays anonymous and that they're taken care of. Do you think these, these games could still take control of the city and unite and do stuff that would be really awesome? <laughs> um, you know, that's a good question. Do I think the gangs could unite? You know, I think they already have in a lot of ways. Whereas there were multiple gangs in Linwood in 92. There's probably about one now, maybe two. 
Uh, and I think that's true of a lot of places in the city. And I wrote safe the way I did because a question I got from a lot of journalists actually is very similar to your question. Well, what what's everything like now? You know, there were all these drive-bys in the eighties and nineties. No, no, I totally get it. But but it but it connects to this idea that you know what's changed. If things are safer for for the average you know innocent bystander, what's changed? And the fact is that. Um, you know, a lot of the street gangs have abandoned the type of activity that they did in the 90s, wearing colors, wearing uniforms, tattoos, anything in that nature. And that's tackled pretty firmly in this book, uh, that, you know, there are tactics now that are a bit more mafia style and are all about doing business in the most invisible way possible. Uh, so that that's why I wrote it the way I did. I, I, because I wanted to answer that question through story instead of, just a straightforward way. Yeah. Question, because you said that they don't watch them crack the stage. Why is that if they know there's money and stuff in there? <laughs> Why don't other authorities yeah. watch Safe Crackers Crack the yeah. Safe? Because they're they're on record, they're trusted, they're officers of the court. Uh, a couple of the guys I spoke to have been doing it for 20 years. You know, when, when, when you have a record, when you know folks, when you have a professional relationship, you know, why would you? No, I get it. I think Hollywood has kind of accustomed us to thinking like you can't trust people who have this incredible skill set. I don't know why that got like a film trailer, <laughs> but I felt it felt good, so I went with it. Um, yeah, it, it, it's you know when when it's a professional situation, you trust people. You know, you, you're talking to people who have to testify in court. You know, uh, who who work all the time. So it's just. Uh, accepted. The other thing to add to that is it's simply not efficient. Nine times out of ten, if you're paying a SWAT team or door kickers to go in there, they're on overtime, and that's not cheap. Uh, so they may have three, four, five spaces to hit in a given day. And if one of those has a safe, <laughs> you've got guys on the clock, you got to go to the next spot, and the next spot, and the next spot, and then you loop back, you send people back, and then you do evidence collection. So, uh, that was news to me, but the second it was uh, explained, it made perfect sense. Yes? Uh, so, Ryan, do you have uh, any food critics coming after you either? I mean, is there a. <laughs> do I have food I've been, critics? I've been to Langer's, I'm looking for the East Side Deli, I'm only 70 pages in. Can I find all these restaurants? <laughs> in, in my book? Um, do I mention East Side Deli in Yeah. Okay, okay. Do I mention Langer's? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know better than I do. Bill. Um, no, I haven't yet. You know, and, and I'm really lucky. I think, uh, you, you know, I actually do some taco judging <laughs> in, in Los Angeles. I, I've done Taco Landia the last couple of years, which is always the most amazing experience. And I think what I enjoy most about it is you know, we're generally working with taqueros who in some cases started out of their backyards. And if we're able to give them recognition for something they're doing that's really special, it gives them an opportunity to really grow that business and get known. And it's a really special thing. Two years ago, uh, Balam and Linwood actually won uh, most innovative taco in all of LA. And what won, because I see everybody's heck of a, wait, what? Uh, coconut crusted shrimp. I see your face. There's a big smile. Uh, <laughs> that had pico de gallo on it with mango and pineapple. 
pumpkin seeds, and it's actually not on a tortilla. It's on jicama that has been cured uh, with hibiscus flour overnight. So it's actually chilled when you put the hot shrimp on it, and it, it actually helps cool the shrimp, and man, it's amazing. I, I hope I made some people hungry just now. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and this, this type of thing, uh, it, it always shows up in my books. It means so much to me because I actually lost the ability to, to smell and taste when I was hit all those years ago. Uh, I lost it for about a year. You know, I had two facial reconstructive surgeries and was basically told, yeah, we don't know if you're ever going to get that, that back. You know, it's extensive nerve damage. Good luck. Uh, but thankfully, within about a year, it, it, it came back. So I guess I'm perhaps overly sensitive about food and taste. But I think as far as how it connects to, to the book, uh, at least for me, it's such, food is such a remarkable gateway into culture. And Los Angeles in particular, you know, the diversity we have here is so extraordinary. And the ways in which chefs in particular, and especially in the last maybe five years, the way they're combining cultural traditions together. I mean, you know, we're talking things like kogi, uh, the Korean tacos. And now not almost everybody uses Korean asada and, and tacos. And that, that's a beautiful thing. And that's only in Los Angeles. You know, we, we've gotten to the point now, at least when it comes to Mexican food, there's now something called Alta California, which is basically Los Angeles and what we do with that. So, you know, no food critics just yet, uh, but who knows, I'm sure. You know, I'm not perfect. <laughs> Somebody come after me at some point. Can you talk more about uh, the notion of Robin Hood more? Oh my gosh. Can I talk more about the notion of Robin Hood more? Um, Sure. <laughs> it's it's a new term I'm trying out, so I appreciate you calling me on that. Uh, I think I just love the idea of a character finding a way to give back to those less fortunate. And I guess the way that that sits in the noir tradition, it, it made the most sense to me that, that, that that would be someone who has a dark past, a difficult past, who felt like he needed to atone for things he'd done to do something good, um, and I think that works. You know, I, I, it's been a very long time since I've read the Robin Hood stories, but it seems to me he did an awful lot of dark stuff in order to justify, you know, what he was doing. I can't imagine he felt good about everything he did. Uh, and in some ways, maybe, you know, being able to provide for others helped assuage some of those feelings of guilt or shame or unhappiness. Um, and at least for me, it seemed like those two things weren't diametrically opposed, that they could actually fit together really well within a character. And, and you know, the more, more and more time I spend in Linwood, it just, it just felt right. So I went with it. Yes? You read really beautifully. I was wondering if you had a history of spoken word or poetry or music. Uh, should I repeat that uh -huh. for the podcast? <laughs> I read really beautifully. <laughs> do do I have a history of, of spoken word or poetry or was that or music? I do not. I do not. I've, I've never done any of that. But I can definitely say I'm an appreciator. You know, I absolutely love um, going to events like that and seeing how people um, really do the best they can to articulate their voice 
you know, for, for tone, for theme, for what they're trying to get across, especially feeling. But I, I think probably the most important thing in my life uh, is, is music for that. You know, I think um, uh, probably hip hop in, in general, you know, the way in which, and, and which is absolutely poetry, the way that can carry uh, and how it can be swung, so to speak. And I think, I guess writing what I write and, and you know, being in, a, in an extremely privileged position to articulate uh, some of these things about re really a criminal subculture that essentially has a code of silence. Um, I definitely do my best to bring it across in a way that's, that's not just respectful, but informative in terms of the intelligence of the individuals involved. As the more time I spend with, with folks who have lived in that world, the more I'm just blown away at how, how multi-layered uh, and, and instinctual um, people can be about human communication and potential manipulation. And, and that, that, that ends up playing a really big role in the book in terms of how Ghost uses his mouth to get out of any number of incredibly dangerous situations. Uh, so that was a very long answer to your question. <laughs> yes, sir? You mentioned music. Do you, could you talk about how uh, music plays into the story? Sure, absolutely. Um, for those of you who have copies, if you could just turn to just past the quotes page, there is a mixtape playlist. Um, so in, in answer to your question about music and how I used it to shape narrative and potentially character, you know, there's, there's a young woman that the narrator fell in love with many years ago uh, when they both had cancer. He lived and she didn't. But what she left behind for him is this mixtape. And it really becomes a sort of mantra for him. It, it really guides his life uh, as he moves forward. So it's separated into two sides. Side one is you, which is how she sees him. And it's, it's all punk, by the way. And it includes The Descendants, Black Flag, Bad Religion, Pennywise, No Effects, to name a few. Side two is me, which is her basically trying to let him know about who she is, maybe things she wasn't able to tell him when she was still alive. And that has X, Adolescence, Misfits, Bad Religion, Minutemen, Buzzcocks, Raincoats, you know, and I, I think it took me a long time to put this list together. You know, I, I sat with a lot of different types of, uh, of punk songs in order to, to really feel what fit, you know, so I was constrained by era because she passes away, I think, in late 92. Uh, so once I knew that, that gives me a sense of what she might talk about. And then I had to find things that, that just connected for me in an emotional way and things that I knew that maybe, because I loved punk as a teenager, but did I understand? <laughs> the resonance of it or, or the space that some of it came from? Absolutely not. You know, I connected to the anger. It's not until later, now that I'm in my 30s, that I'm realizing, wait, you know, there, there's a lot more going on in, in, in these songs. And, and I try, I, again, of course, I tried to imagine, you know, first being exposed to these songs as, as Ghost would have been at 17 years old. 
and then growing up with them and kind of living with them and then when he finally gets into his 30s he starts realizing wait a second like she's she's trying to tell me something and i think that this kind of code this imprint you know the ways in which music can not just soundtrack our lives but inform our lives and in, in some cases push us to even be better people and and more connected people um, that's what i really wanted to do and, and it really in some ways i think it forms uh, the emotional core for Ghost Character, especially because he never talks to anybody about it, ever. Like, he does everything he can not to share it with anyone, even though it's his prized possession, and everywhere he goes, he keeps it in his pocket. He gets out of his car, he takes it out of his car, and he zips it in his pocket every time. Of course, there's a moment when he will listen to that music with somebody who, actually two people, who may actually destroy it. And that's part of the beauty of conflict and storytelling, and, and how far can I push this character, and what kind of decisions will he make as a result of that? That said, I mean, what, what was the most challenging aspect for you to work through in writing this project? What was the most challenging aspect for me to work through in writing this project? That's a tough question. Um, uh, if I'm really honest, you know, and, and, and really vulnerable, uh, it, it was dealing with the aspects of addiction. Ghost uh, is an addict. Been in recovery for 16 years. Uh, Rose really kind of set him on that path. And then she she passed. And he had to go the rest alone. You know, I, I've spent time in, in quite a few Al-Anon rooms and Aranon rooms. And I can honestly say, you know, those rooms gave me such a dramatic new perspective on my life and what I was doing to contribute to problems, you know, with, with, uh, with folks in my sphere. And uh, actually, uh, Ghost goes to an NA meeting that is actually held in the church where I used to do not, uh, Al-Anon meetings uh, on the second floor. You know, I always remember that room and I always remember the perspective it gave me because I think walking into that room I had all these things in my head about how I was suffering in this unique and special way that no one could understand and then I walked into that room and I realized that an awful lot of people were suffering in ways that were so much bigger than mine and it was so helpful and, and humbling and difficult you know and definitely forced a lot of introspection and, and I have to say you know with every book I think I try to write something that scares the hell out of me, and, and, and that, that was the case with SAFE. I, I never really talked about addiction, ever. How it's affected me, how, it, how it's affected folks in my sphere, and you know, to, to go there was uh, not something I was eager to do. But I'm glad I did. And one of the big reasons why is because a lot of the folks that I spent time with you know, in and around Linwood, and even City Terrace and Lincoln Heights and other places, you know, that it's it's just there. It's it's just ever present. You know, uh, when you when you grow up in some of these neighborhoods, you know, the need to anesthetize is very real. You know, given the amount of, of violence and, and difficulty that, that folks faced, especially on a daily basis in the eighties and nineties. I mean, I don't think I've ever met a family that hasn't dealt with violent crime to immediate family members. And that 
I, I think that was definitely the, the, the toughest part, right? Yes. On a lighter note, uh, uh, <laughs> Lemony Snicket, I forgot his real name. Yeah. He had an op ed piece in one of the newspapers the other day saying that if you want to get high school boys to read, you've got to hand them books with sex in them. Mm. And as a high school teacher myself, I'm wondering if your book has any sex in it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question. Um, or if you agree with that. <laughs> I really wish the mic picked all that up, but just to, to summarize, <laughs> on a lighter note, <laughs> um, high school students will relate more to, to books with sex in it, according to Daniel Hamler, aka Lemmy Snicket. Everybody's nodding at me. Yes, yes, you got it. Um, this one doesn't. I don't think, I mean, it's, I'm getting, my editor is mouthing things at me. She's trying to feed me lines. Remember that one part that you forgot you wrote, that you wrote, that I edited? There is not really. Not really. Not, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, there's definitely implied in this one. Um, Kung Fu High School, uh, which is another uh, book I wrote, it was published about, uh, goodness. 12, 13 years ago now. Uh, it's, it's being re-released in September. That definitely does. Uh, not that I'm trying to sell it to you. So. Uh, you know, it's the first I've heard of it, so I'm definitely still trying to process this, but I think, I, I think there's something to that. You know, I think there's something to honest, open, interesting depictions of, of stuff that maybe doesn't get talked about enough you know in, in our daily lives with our family or, or or the only thing we hear about it is with friends you know that the beauty of a book is it gives you an opportunity to, to you know to commune with the mind of that author be in that story and essentially um, experience consequences in an emotional way that you don't have to experience in a physical way and in that way reading is extremely helpful with such a thing i'd imagine um, well, it is getting harder to get high school boys to read. Mm. Uh, they did like Ready Player One because it's video games. Sure. They do like games. They do like swear words. So, I mean, I think, yeah. but it, it's hard to, to, um, to, I don't know, to offer these books to them when you're a high school teacher. Sure, sure. Well, if I could just explain very briefly my experience with All Involved when I wrote it. Um, my publisher was, was so bullish on it, but one of the things they were worried about was the level of violence because of the gangs and because I was being true to a certain era in Los Angeles history that was extremely bloody. There were over 3,000 murders in LA County in 92. That's almost 10 a day. Uh, so they, they were so worried about that that in some cases, I think it kept us from, you know, talking to, to teenagers about it. But the American Library Association came in and they actually awarded the book an Alex Award, which means adult books, but are suitable, interesting, powerful, important for teenagers. And I actually hadn't even thought of the book that way until it happened. Um, 
at the award ceremony, I gave a speech about being in, in Linwood and talking to the middle schools and the high schools there. Uh, and, and what I found is that it's become, I, far beyond my wildest expectations, it's become a really important book uh, for Fireball High School, for, for Linwood Middle. Um, you know, I gave a talk at Linwood Middle uh, after two of their students had been murdered through gang violence. And, you know, when they first asked me to, to come, I said, look, you know, I'm not a grief counselor. I'm not a doctor, you know, I, I can't do these things. And they said, well, look, you know, we know you've spoken to a lot of folks, you're familiar with the neighborhood, can you just come? And, and they were desperate for students to read something that was fast-paced, human, you know, that acknowledged consequences, uh, but also, you know, gave these students an opportunity to experience consequences again in an emotional way, but not in a physical way, because that's still a very real thing in Lenin. Um, I hope, <laughs> I hope you don't think I'm pitching this book to you, I, I, but it's just, when you mentioned that, it really struck a chord for me, because I genuinely never thought about the book that way. I honestly thought, oh, maybe it's a little too elevated for, for folks of, of this age group, but um, which, it's... Which book is that again? All Involved. Yeah, so it's, it's been really powerful and, it, and it's even helped me to view my work in, in a different light and, and even speak to uh, students in a different way. You know, I did a, I did a talk in Los Padrinos, uh, the juvenile hall in Downey, not long after that, also talking about All Involved and the ways in which reading can, can hopefully, you know, give, give folks another opportunity, another way out. Um, and, and amazingly, I think this has kind of led to some really cool opportunities. I'm, I'm giving a talk at, at Greenock Prison in Scotland in like a week, and it's an opportunity to talk to prisoners as well as their teenage children. Uh, and from what I understand, it's the first time all year that the teenage children are actually allowed into the prison instead of just in a visiting area or a waiting area. So it's an opportunity for them to actually be there with their parents. Uh, which, trust me, um, there I go making things serious again. <laughs> but I don't take that lightly. You know, I think, I think um, having, you know, the, 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 the privilege of knowing quite a few people who've been through this, the seriousness of gang violence, I think, you know, as long as it's not sugarcoated, as long as, you know, and myself being a survivor of violence, you know, I, I can't write about violence in a way that isn't consequential and, and deeply affecting, you know, especially family members, friends, etc. Um, I, I found that's what resonates for high school students. I found, you know, I, it's, it's been surprising me too, like young high school age male students are, are reading it and are connecting with it and want to talk about it. And, and the first thing they always say is, I don't really read, but I liked this. And uh, I always find that really gratifying and, and, and important and impressive. And I will keep this in mind for the next book. I will just make sure there's, there's lots of sex in it. <laughs> Last question? Oh, yeah, one more. OK. Well, I, I know your book is very popular. Your olive ball was very popular in Europe. Did you find teenagers reading it in Europe as well? Was it? <sighs> yes, but in, but in pockets. So I think. It, you know, in Finland, 
like the, the punk rock kids and the hip hop kids, and uh, you know, they all read it and they loved it. But I think a lot of that had to do with I think how badass my PR person was, and she got me on every radio show, and I was just, we were just wall to wall there. Um, and it's different. I think in some ways it's totally cultural. Like in France, it won War of the Year. Um, so I think it's thought of as a very, as a deeply serious book, not necessarily for teenagers, but of course it is France, so read what you like. Um, I don't know why I was miming smoking a cigarette there. Robin Williams. Uh, yeah, I, I, it seems to be more of an adult book over there, but it's been really just fascinating, you know, to, to connect with younger readers here, especially in Los Angeles, especially in areas where they actually have to deal with some of these issues to this day. Amazing. <laughs> All right, let's give up. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.